0: Welcome to New Jersey Tech Meetup, the podcast. Each episode, we bring you a huge amount of value from past keynotes at our events, fireside chats, and much, much more. Tune in to hear from entrepreneurs, such as Gary Vaynerchuk, James Altucher, and your host, Aaron Price. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we can't wait to share more episodes with you in the future.
1: How about a big round of applause for Bobby Goldschuhl, the head of design at we were. That's what we call a very super lame round of applause. So can we try that again? Woo! <laughs> um, normally, I read, we're gonna share the mic. We, we had a, we're in a different room, as many of you know, so our AV setup's a little different, so I apologize ahead of time, it was a little awkward in the mic sharing. Um, you might be sitting next to someone who may be in this seat in the future. I met Bobby about three years ago at one of our events, I don't know if you remember, with Jack Serby. <laughs> and uh, at the time, he was founder of an app called Flood that had raised a bunch of money from some notable investors, and we've kept in touch. And over the time, now he's changed careers, had a few different interesting, interesting uh, things happen, um, and is now the head of design at WeWork. And we're going to get to what that's all about. But I want to start with around the time of when we met, and uh, you talk about having invented. You know, I want to I want you to remind people about what the the world looked like at the time. What year it was? I think it was 2013. Uh, 10. 10. Sorry and what social news was and what you guys did to change that.
0: So um, I'm a little bit of a masochist, and I know that not a lot of hands are going to go up, but has anyone heard of Flood before? If you have, raise your hand. Look at that, three hands, thank you. <laughs> this is why we're out of business. <laughs> um, so, so Flood started in, in 2010, Um, I started this company with uh, a good friend and a great engineer uh, from a company that I worked in before, Flood. It was a design agency. And um, the problem at the end of the day that we were trying to solve is the iPad had just been released, and um, I have a news habit that, uh, you know, I I open my browser every morning, I've got 15 tabs open, and I'm trying to digest as much news as possible. Um, And... We saw in the iPad the ability to replace the desktop browser with some new capabilities, with some cool gesture and touch capabilities, uh, and we wanted to build an app together. We weren't, we weren't going out to start a business together. This was a side hustle. This is something we, you know, I went to him and I said, hey, I've got a design. I'd like to do something with this. Um, and he came up to me a few days later, and he said, you know what, I'm going to find some time. And this is a guy that has two kids, uh, and, uh, and uh, he's... Uh, you know, he, he managed to uh, find weekend times to spend a month with me designing and building this thing we ended up calling Flood. What Flood was, uh, in its early days, it was a social newsreader. Actually, it wasn't even social. When we first launched it, it was just a newsreader. It was a kind of a cool mosaic interface uh, for us to browse sources that we looked through every single day. And um, we, we put this product out into the market for $4.99 at a time when apps were apps were going crazy. I mean, it, it wasn't as crazy as it is today, but the app market was exploding because of the iPhone. And we figured if people liked it enough, they'd give us $4.99 for it. Um, but we really put it out there for ourselves. And we noticed that... A lot of people had similar problems that we had with news and content consumption, and they were willing to pay us the money to do it. And something that was a, a side hustle turned out to become an actual business uh, because we were generating tens of thousands of dollars every single week. Uh, we couldn't understand, we couldn't, we couldn't really, we, we, we couldn't understand where that demand was coming from because uh, n- unlike a traditional design method, Flood was not born from any long-scaled research or asking users questions we were designing this thing for ourselves and we just happened to get lucky to be able to launch something that people cared enough to pay us money for Um,
1: and so what else showed up at the time What, what were some of the competitors that popped up around this time that people might have heard of
0: so the two competitors that popped around uh around flood the same time were flipboard and pulse which you guys have probably heard of flipboard is still a private company today I think they're valued at over a billion dollars. They're doing really well. Pulse sold to LinkedIn for ninety million dollars about three years ago. Um, we, do you have a question?
1: No, you were about to tell it.
0: Yeah. Uh, the the so before I get to the fate of flood, the beauty of Flipboard and 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 Pulse launching is that we were able to to, to dovetail on on a lot of the press that they were getting. Uh, so people in Silicon Valley, I mean Pulse and Flipboard were. They were the, the valley darlings, and we were a San Diego company at the time. So we got really lucky that they launched around the same time. I'd claim no credit to take any of the press that we got. But we were we were extremely fortunate that we were mentioned along with them, and there were plenty of other competitors in the market. We just happened to have a really interesting design product. Um, and what, what was your question there? I, I was
1: gonna, you, know, you were talking about the success of Flipboard and Pulse and Valuation. I was just curious... I think there's probably a few people here who can relate to being the other. I was wondering what the fate of Flood was.
0: Yep, yeah, we, we folded the company in 2013. Um, we had a business that catered primarily to the consumers. When we when we were charging $4.99, it was still a consumer business. Uh, we eventually ended up taking venture capital. We raised uh, $2.5 million. We had to show growth, and so we stopped making money. We got the app uh, to go free on the market, and... Um, perhaps maybe the biggest mistake we made was not focusing on the dollars. But we ended up following the company in 2013 after we pivoted the company a couple of times, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into. Um, Yeah, that was a sad story. Thanks for taking me there. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. You're doing all right.
1: Um, can, Can you share a little bit about, there are a lot of news readers, and I think you might be doing a disservice to, how design first, you know, companies like, if you've used, how many people here have used Flipboard or Pulse? So it was roughly half. So speak a little bit towards the design first mentality you had. Um, and then also, I'm curious about how you feel today about pricing models for apps when people launch, free versus
0: paid. We didn't use a traditional design approach for Flood. Uh, I, if I was to launch Flood again, I probably wouldn't launch it the way I did. Uh, at the end of the day, we didn't meet a we didn't meet a true functional need for people that use our product, which is my theory on why the product failed in the first place. Uh, the reason it did so well, though, is we were kind of positioned as this sexy newsreader, um, and people that were talking about us were talking about us because the app the app ended up looking really good on an iPad. This is a point in time where. We were looking for good-looking apps on the iPad, and Apple featured us on the App Store. Actually, interesting story. I reached out um, the week after we launched Flood on the iPad. I reached out to Steve Jobs um, because there's this famed notion that he responds to emails. um, And I still have this email, and I sent him an email, and I thanked him for the App Store, and I thanked him for the platform, and I sent him my app. Uh, that morning this is, a, the, this is about a, a period of my life where I was going I was sleeping at 3 or 4 in the morning And I used to wake up at 8 so it was a massive hustle I mean the, by, the, by the time the by the time the app was free in the app store Flood was my only hustle like this was this was my business. This is something I wanted to put up uh, out into the world as a business um, so I reached out to uh, reached out to Steve Jobs his email was widely available and the next morning I got to sleep at around 4 in the morning, I get an email back from him, Uh, excuse me, I I get an email back from someone at Apple, uh, and I didn't read this email, but they were essentially saying, listen, we're going to call you, and we'd like to talk to you about featuring you in the App Store. Well, I didn't see this email, and I was fast asleep, and my phone rang, and I kind of woke myself out of sleep, and I picked up the phone, and the guy on the other line says, hi, this is Steve from Apple. And I completely I almost hit the bed at that point. I was like, holy shit, like what? And 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 he starts laughing and his his it wasn't Steve Jobs, it was Steve something or the other. This is the guy that <laughs> this is this is the guy that ran the app store at Apple. And I mean it was it was a massive buzzkill. But but in that in that moment, like he gave me a second of euphoria. And he essentially said, Listen, Steve Story email, he sent he forwarded it to me. I checked out the app. You should open up the app store. So we opened up the app store. Um, I'm like getting out of bed, I'm still in my underwear. I open up the App Store, my wife's still asleep, and um, we're the number one featured app on the App Store, and they've got these nice feature windows right at the very top, and it completely blew my mind. And that might be the greatest and worst thing that ever happened to Flood, because we were so ill-prepared. The technology was not built. We were adding four users a second at that point, which is insane. Um, The server load and... We were adding four users, a, it was about 15,000 users a day, or some insane number for the week that we were in the app store, and so it got a lot of attention. The reason I say that this is a good and bad thing, it was kind of a curse, uh, because it crashed our app. I mean, it instantly crashed our app. We did not build our app for thousands of people to simultaneously use it. Um, the week into the app being live, we got a lot of investor interest. I had no idea what investors were. I wasn't looking for investment. This was a free product. Um, uh, I didn't even know how to make it a business. I thought we were going to put ads on the product. Uh, and we were getting all these calls from investors. Eventually, I started Googling up what venture capital was and what you know, like how to speak to an investor. Why would you ever raise money from an investor? By the way, not every business should raise money from an investor. And I think the two investors in the room would, would agree with that. But the plenty of startups here, you know, I was speaking to a couple of start- startups earlier, and they have no intention of of becoming billion dollar companies. And you know, my suggestion to them was never go to VCs because they will make your life hell and, and they will change your mission and change your business and you will quit and it's gonna suck. Flood was ill-prepared to think about venture capital because we did not have a business model. Here's how screwed up the market was at that point in time. People only cared about user growth. I think that's changed a little bit right now, but investors, when they spoke to us, all they gave a shit about was, you're adding four users a second, you're going to be a multi-billion dollar company. I'm going to, what? Wow, it's going to be amazing. We're going to be a billionaire. Please take some of my money. This is a terrible way to raise money. Uh, and so we, we ended up raising a bunch of money for Flood, not as much as our competitors, focused on a lot of the wrong things. I would not do Flood the same way again this time. Um, yeah.
1: So there's a few great things in here, but just on that in particular, when you say you focus on the wrong things, what are three things you focus on that were wrong? What are three? What are one or two or three you should have focused on instead?
0: Well, we we didn't focus on making money for the entirety of our consumer product. Uh, while it was out in the market, we were we were competing against Flipboard and Pulse, and this was a problem because we were competing against Lipboard and Pulse instead of building a product that people would want to download. And so um, we, while we had a lot of our, our, we had the sugar spikes, so if anyone's launched an app here, when you put your app up in the app store, if you get pressed, if you get featured, you get a lot of users, but it gives you these false positive notions that people care about your app when they actually don't. People just have a bad habit of downloading and using and then kind of discarding the app because they have low attention spans. And so one of the mistakes that we made is we constantly got, we wanted that sugar high. We wanted to figure out ways to kind of hijack uh, the way we were growing in that first week when we launched Flood, and we wanted to make that keep happening, but we did that the wrong way. The idea of growth is not bad in and of itself, but when you rely on press, when you rely on app store features, I mean, we built our Android app because we timed our Android app launch around Google saying they were going to feature us. This is a really stupid thing to do because the Google helped us um, with some engineers because we didn't have a lot of Android uh, engineers on our on our team at that point, but we, were, we, we had no time to test the product we had no time to uh, to truly validate uh, whether or not the initial product that we launched was 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 worth building on a new platform. so we skipped through too many platforms we weren 't focused on making on, on making any money, and we were focused too much on those sugar spikes of getting we were depending on the press and we were depending on uh, getting featured in the app store, so those are three things that I think we did that ended up in a spiral that that caused us to shut the company down at some point, but um, things that I would do all over again um, we had some early signals of where flood could potentially make quite a bit of money. Uh, we eventually pivoted the company to the enterprise as early, i mean we did this two years after the company had actually launched uh, to the market but the week or two that we launched to the App Store, we got a, qual- a call from Qualcomm. Qualcomm is the largest chip maker there in San, one of the largest chip makers in the world there in San Diego, and they, you know, so- some of their innovation department heads came up to me and said, "Listen, we're trying to find ways to syndicate content in our company a little bit better. Can you help us? We just used your app. All our executives just got iPads. They all want a Qualcomm app. We have no idea what to build, but content is something that we need to put out into the world in Qualcomm. We have a lot of it." And we send a lot of emails. Can you solve this problem for Qualcomm? And I was, I was young and naive. I didn't even understand what the enterprise market was at that point. Uh, and I definitely said no. Because I my entire focus was user growth, but in all the wrong places. Eventually, we learned that that enterprise need, that enterprise demand, that we sensed early on, um, could have saved the company if we had ended up focusing on that a little bit more.
1: So on the personal side, you mentioned you were... You know, barely sleeping. And I'm sure it was just taking a, a toll. I can certainly relate to that in, in current and previous startup endeavors. I wonder uh, how you manage that, and, and in particular, how uh, you talked about when, when the inception of this idea happened and how those around you, maybe your now wife, thought about this. About me sleeping? No, about you taking on uh, uh, building a company. Um, you went from a steady paycheck to a
0: Hey, guess what we're going to do this full time. Yeah. So I think sleep is really important. I I'm a designer by trade and I I think to be a great designer is like one of the things that you need to do is sleep because you need to kind of flush your brain to come back to the problems that you're that you're trying to tackle on a daily basis. So sleep is really important to me and I kind of screwed up my 20s because I didn't I didn't sleep a lot and I mean I think all the entrepreneurs here can can probably empathize with that because you're so focused on getting to that next thing like whatever that next thing is to move your business forward you, you want to make progress you don't want you, you don't just want motion right so you want to keep moving forward and it's so difficult to assess what moving forward means and so you end up in your you kind of stick through back in your own head um, and you try and uh, you, you you need the waking hours to to problem solve essentially um, to to help move you forward. As far as like what my what my wife thought about me and Flood before we got married. So we got married a, two, a week and a half before we launched. Before I launched the company, I launched the company on my honeymoon, which is a terrible thing. Um, like, totally like asshole thing. And um, I I was just so into the I was just so into what I was building that it was for her it was more important just to support me. I spent my Christmases and my Thanksgivings answering customer service calls and, like, responding to tweets and this and that. It was kind of psychotic. Um, But I got a lot of support, and I continue to get a lot of support from my wife today because at the end of the day, I'm not an entrepreneur now. I'm definitely not a serial entrepreneur. uh, But if I wanted to move into my next entrepreneur endeavor, I know I would get my wife's support. By the way, we have a kid now, so this this is an even more complicated problem. Back when I was 25, this is, you know, six years ago, um... It was not that difficult. I didn't have a lot to lose. I had no assets. I had no home. I had no babies. I just got married. Uh, The job that I left wasn't paying that well. So there was not much there to lose. So that decision is actually, it was really simple. The decision now would be a lot harder. I have a great team. I'm in a company I love. I've got a child. Uh, I've got a, a wife and a home to support. So I personally don't take entrepreneurship lightly. So if I make the decision that I want to start a company. If that's something I want to do, and I'm intentional about it, I believe my wife would support me.
1: So at some point you decided, the flood's not working out. Um, First, how did you approach your investors about that reality? What was their feedback? And how might people here navigate something like that? Considering 90% or so of companies tend to fail, certainly those that raise capital. How do you recommend people navigate those waters? Speaking, Speaking, yeah. Making you thirsty.
0: Shutting a company down is an extremely personal thing. Uh, It's a very human moment. It's an admission of failure. Uh, It's an admission of failure not just to yourself. It's an admission of failure to your team. Uh, As as a founder of a company that's taken investment from an institutional investor, I've got a fiduciary duty to return that and more back to my investors. But it's not as personal for them. It's, not, it's, it's, it's more personal because you banked on the hopes and dreams uh, that, you, that you sold to people who left a lot on the table to come work with you. And the moment you sit down, the hardest thing I did was not tell my investors that we need to shut the, the company down. The hardest thing I did was to tell my team that, but more importantly, to tell my founder, my co-founder, that um, because he was so focused on the engineering and I was focused on the business and I, there was a point in time where I just looked at I looked at the condition of the business and I looked at um, investor interest and I just and I, I I couldn't see a way out and this is coming from someone who has three planes like I just always have I mean people have people in in back and flood always commented on how we were able to maneuver flexibly from one position to another, depending on the climate of a conversation with the investor, what the press says, what what our competitors launched, whether or not there's a new device being launched that we need to support. At this point, I was out of options. And so when I went back to my investors, the conversation was actually pretty simple. I mean, we had kept them in the loop the entire time. They knew how much money we had in the bank. They knew what our runway was. Um, Part of our investors completely understood and were, were not, they weren't upset, but there's a, a, a level of disappointment. Now, we had some amazing investors, and some of our investors thought that it was too early. And that is a decision that, in, that, that entrepreneurs have to make for themselves. Whether, like, too, too early to quit is easy to say. It's really, really hard to work with when your investors are pressuring you to stay on the line stay in the business, especially when you don't see a way out. So this is something that you have to kind of go back into your mind, be really clear with yourself on whether or not there really is no other path. And if you've made that decision, you talk to your spouse if you have one, you talk to a friend, you talk to your co-founder, talk to a couple of close advisors before you ever go to your investors uh, to let them know that this is, this is it, in my opinion.
1: So you made a pretty dramatic uh, change and you were thinking a lot about medical devices, right? And so, how did you decide to educate yourself? And maybe you could share a little bit about what you were thinking about doing
0: next. So we, once I once I got done with Flood, I I had a couple months. I took a couple months off from the startup world, and I was trying to figure out what my next step was. And I love really difficult problems. And one of the problems that I saw was in the healthcare world. Now, my wife is a medical device scientist. Um, she works on kind of on healing systems made from collagen, which is kind of cool. Um, and I looked at the healthcare world and I said, this is, here's a problem that needs entrepreneurs to be interested in. And so if you could find a niche in the healthcare world, that's interesting enough that you're willing to go to bat for and, and, and you're willing to come to work for every day, then it, it's, it's going to be a worthwhile experience and a worthwhile exercise because you're going to end up affecting a lot of lives. And so I... I had this idea of putting together a bodysuit that essentially it, it had a bunch of sensors in it that would map your body for you to your phone. And the reason you'd want to do this is uh, if you work out, if you care about your, your health, if you care about fitness, uh, the way we tend to look at fitness and progress is through weight. When in reality, a lot of us go into fitness to be healthier, yes, but really we want to fix our silhouette, right? Like we want to be a little bit leaner, we want uh, our clothes to fit a little bit better. And there was no tool out on the market that solved that problem. And I just looked at that and I said it would be really interesting if you just had a bunch of, completely naive, uh, no physical tech background, no healthcare background, I just said it would be really cool if you had this thing that you could put on and it had a bunch of sensors in it that just talked to each other and the further apart they were, uh, it would read that as distance from each other and mathematically just create a geometric uh, mirror image of your body and map it to the phone and I thought that that was a really cool worthwhile thing to build because um, because I feel like a lot of people that care about their health uh, are looking for ways other than their weight to to see progress and, I, and one of the one of the things that I wanted to do with this app by the way is every time you image your body it would screenshot it and it would the app would essentially have a slider so you can slide back and forth to look at where your body is shrinking and, and gaining. Um, so I, I worked with an MIT scientist and I found this guy online, he was amazing. Um, and we determined together that it was going to be too expensive. So there are technology readiness levels, and the the readiness levels are on a scale. And the lower scale is generally what gets funded by the Department of Defense, and the higher scale is what gets funded by corporations that gets put on the market. The technology readiness level, I believe, is on a scale of one to 10. And for the specific technology we needed for this garment that we wanted to make, it was like a technology readiness four. So it wasn't even close to, to what we needed for commercial production and just Banking off of a lot of the the past from Flood, I I realized if we can't market this thing from day one, if we need three years of R and D time, there's no way I'm going to fund this, and this is not going to be a real business. And so I decided to to find another niche um, in in healthcare, and I decided to go to Blue Shield. At Blue Shield, uh, I helped set up the innovation, their first innovation department. It's it's called HIT. It's their healthcare innovation team, and uh, they're based out of San Francisco. And that was a lot of fun. But I realize at the end of the day, I'm not the right entrepreneur to solve healthcare problems. It's too difficult. It moves too slow. And uh, it's too complicated for me, to, for me to make a dent in that world. I felt like I needed to do years of, of, of study and research to truly understand the, the potential of what isn't there in order to build something that's worth building for that space. So
1: how did you feel about making the transition, though, of going from running your own business to now working for a fairly substantially large corporation?
0: So that was, it was hard at first. Um, the thing that saved it is I was still here. So I live in Jersey, and the thing that saved it is they allowed me to build the team remotely, and so I built a remote team, and that was fun. and I didn't have to go into an office every day. And I slowly, I was there for a year and a half and I started warming myself up to this idea that I got to go into an office. It's an office that I don't run and uh, it's for a team that kind of works for me or not really, they kind of work for someone else and where I don't really call the shots. Like these are difficult things to contend with when you're coming off of an entrepreneurial startup uh, stint. And um, it was it was not as, it wasn't as bad as I initially anticipated it to be. In fact, the team that we built there was really fantastic. I had a lot of fun working with them. A lot of the people that I hired are still there um, and they're still working on really cool uh, software for the healthcare industry.
1: I could I could hear the train of thought of, well, it's an innovation hub and it's funded and there's resources and I won't have the stress of it. But in looking back, do you was that a mistake to take that role? You were
0: there for three years, right? N- uh, no, I was there for a year and a half. Okay. No, it wasn't a mistake at all. It wasn't a mistake at all because... I learned a lot about building a team. It was the first time I built uh, the kind of innovation team. Like, I thought I built an in, uh, a multidisciplinary team, but uh, this is the first time where I was surrounded by people that had done it before, and they were teaching me how to do it, and I was working closely with the chief experience officer who, was, who, ra- who ran experience for American Express um, and Target, I believe, and he was, he was just an amazing tutor, uh, and I learned a lot. It, to me, it was a learning experience. It was a stepping stone to my next thing at the end of the day. So
1: let's jump to that next thing, right? Because now you're at that next thing at WeWork, right? So I want you to share a little bit about what's the number one misconception about what WeWork does, um, and then talk about how you, let's go through the cycle. So let's start with then how you interview candidates. So we'll do what WeWork does. the, The one mic thing is challenging, but what WeWork does, what your team does, and how you potentially find new recruits for that team. So how
0: many people here have heard of WeWork before? That's amazing. How many people here think WeWork is a real estate company? Okay, that's not as bad as I thought. Uh, The the common misconception of WeWork, and this is a misconception I had as well when I was at Blue Shield, is that WeWork was a real estate company, and there's a company that essentially builds out spaces. And we do that, but that's a very small part of the business. I have a friend at WeWork who essentially reached out to me while I was at Blue Shield, and she said, listen, come in and speak to our chief product officer. His name is, is Roey Adler. He's an amazing, he has an amazing entrepreneur track record. This guy is an amazing pitch man. Um, and I, I looked him up online and I said, you yeah, know, I want to meet this guy, but I'm not really that interested in working at WeWork, so I'm going to go meet with him. And so we, we, I came into the WeWork offices, sat down with him, and I was talking. And about 10 minutes in, I realized that what WeWork was doing, the potential of what was happening at a WeWork, uh, quickly surpassed what I actually thought. Uh, WeWork was, and I was instantly attracted to the to the potential uh, and instantly tr- attracted to this guy that I was talking to. And turns out what WeWork actually does is not necessarily real estate. We have three parts to our business. We do space, community, and services. And what that means is we, at the end of the day, care about connecting people, and the way we do that is we connect inspiring people in inspiring spaces, and then we build services that solve business problems for them, and hopefully they build services that solve business problems for other people so that when they connect, people engage and collaborate and talk and share and learn from each other. Uh, this is something that I was not at all privy to. And so I decided, I did a walkthrough of WeWork, I booked a space there, and I witnessed I witnessed the, the sort of the, the shared workspace revolution firsthand. And... I was instantly attracted to it, and I'm there today. And I could tell you, I mean, we are growing gangbusters. I mean, we just announced that we're going to to, to India. Uh, we're opening in San Diego now, which is amazing. We announced that last night. Um, Where you know, India has got 1.2 billion people. 700 million of the people in India are under the age of 30 years old, which means these are 700 million uh, millennials. That's twice the U.S. population. That's one and a half times the size of the EU. This is the most educated uh, group of Indians in the history of India. And so when India comes to WeWork and says, you know, whatever that secret sauce is, whatever that magic mojo is that you guys have going on, why don't you bring it here? Because we've got 700 million people. All these guys are going to school and they've got disposable incomes and a lot of them are entrepreneurial. Um, they want to start businesses. We just don't know how. We don't have the. We don't have the, the, the culture fostered here to do that yet, and so we need that mindset to change. And we think that WeWork could be really interesting. So what they're actually seeing is that at the end of the day, what WeWork brings to the table is we've figured out how to build inspiring spaces. We've figured out how to curate the people that come into a WeWork, and that has a lot to, to do with our brand, which we've painstakingly maintained. Um, and we figured out how to connect these people, so someone in India or someone in China or in Australia can connect to an entrepreneur or a service provider in in the UK or in Brazil or in Mexico, and transact. And you do this in a trusted network because you're both We Workers, and that's a game changer. That could change. I think it could change the economy of. Of India, and if it changes the economy of India and, say, China, because you mobilize and galvanize all of these young people, um, you change the global landscape and the global economy, in my opinion. So the community aspect is really what makes WeWork so special.
1: So let's talk about the design function in particular. How do you guys see design and and productize some of your services uh, around design to make the business more valuable and, and the services more valuable? And then how do you... Individually, I think we've talked about the process that you've created to uh, potentially hire people. Want, I'd like to hear you. I know, want to share a little bit more about that process.
0: So design is interesting at WeWork because we have four or five different kinds of designers. So we've got people that design the spaces, the interior designers. We've got architects. We've got graphic designers slash artists. Uh, we've got digital designers, which is by the way, I'm not the head of design of WeWork. I'm head of digital design of WeWork. There's all these different kinds of design that I don't do. Um, We've got digital design, and then we've got brand design. So when you think about design, like WeWork is a design-focused company. Um, you walk into a WeWork space, and the first feeling you get is it's really open, and it's colorful, and it's gorgeous, and it it, it, it celebrates art, and it's got really good furniture. And so that first feeling is the delighter, right? It's like a delightful, pleasurable, uh, neurotic kind of experience when you walk in. That to me, is the most trivial part of what the design actually tends to do at WeWork. So one of the things, as an example, we design and build our own imaging software at, at WeWork where we 3D scan a space before we move in, and then we figure out how to chop the space up. What percent of that space goes to private offices? What percent of that space goes to... Uh, co-mingling and what percent of that space goes to co-working is actually really, really important. You could argue that everything should be a private office because it yields so much money, but then it completely misses the community point, right? So we've got people that, whose entire job it is is to figure out how to design a space, not visually when you look at it, but how to design it functionally so that it serves all of the needs of, our, of the 70,000 entrepreneurs and large companies and small companies that are inside of a WeWork. Uh, we, that's, we have seventy thousand people. It's so about ten or fifteen thousand businesses that are actually in a work. To me, that is amazing design. One of the things that, at our, our at our headquarters that we have is uh, our, our our CEO. Uh, has stopped the elevator from going to the fifth floor. So we've got five floors in this building in Chelsea. And he forces everyone to get off on the fourth floor, and if you work on the fifth floor, you've got to walk through the back, through the big common area. You've got to find this nice atrium that we have there. You've got to walk up the stairs. The stairs have working spaces on it. And it forces us to run into people. forces us to talk to people, as opposed to just going to the fifth floor and walking to your desk. That, to me, is an example of good functional design. And so when we think about design at WeWork, we really think about it in in multiple layers. We think functional, we think reliable, we think usable, and then eventually we think pleasurable. And if all good design, I mean, you you could buy a car, you could uh, uh, use a frying pan at home, right, a refrigerator. Any service needs to go through these layers of um, convincing people that your product is good. so. The startups that pitched earlier, by the way, like the wash... uh, Wash Club, right? Uh, their pitch was really good because I felt like it, it solved it solved a really cool functional need. Um, but it had it worked its way all the way up to the delightfulness because of the on-demand nature of it. So it's really interesting. Uh, the more the more we puts itself out there, the more we try and find ways uh, to get to, to attain that pleasurability and that delightfulness. But we never get our we, we, we keep our heads kind of in the functional area to make sure that we're actually. Doing the thing that we were set out to do in the first place.
1: So the recruiting process.
0: The recruiting process. Um, so I'll speak to the I'll speak to the design team that we're, we've uh, built um, on the digital side. We have an exhaustive recruiting process. It's extremely expensive to make bad, uh, poor recruiting decisions um, because it hurts morale. It hurts the person you've hired. Um, and so what we've done is we've spent a lot of time figuring out how to curate people. Uh, and get people through the doors at WeWork, and before they ever get to speak to any designer at WeWork, they have a few things that they've got to do. First, I, I'm kind of the first point of contact that they speak to, which in most companies, the head of design or the head of whatever tends to be the last th- the last person people speak to. Um, and I do this because our team is small. We've got 10 designers. They're really busy. They're working on 15 different products, uh, and, and they don't have time to sit in these long meetings talking to people that might not work out. Uh, we've got... A design take-home exercise that we get people to do so that when they come through to show us their work they're not just showing us work that they've done previously they're actually showing us uh, an exercise that we've designed for them uh, to do on their own time without the pressure of someone looking over their shoulder which is really interesting it's very telling to see how far someone will take the design uh, when they don't have a lot of guidance and they don't have someone kind of telling them exactly what to do when they come on board it's a six-hour interview process they do a co-interview with our team they pitch themselves they show us their work Um, we do an in-person design exercise with the team so we pick four people from the team the person comes in Uh, we have a list of 30 exercises that we could randomly assign this person and uh, the whole point there is the in-person is going to show us how they communicate whether or not this is someone who in a high-pressure situation uh, is able to uh, work under constraints um, and come up with great ideas, while also involving the rest of the team. And we really want that because we want to foster uh, a communication and collaborative environment for the design team there. And then the the end of the process, we're really looking for cultural. Uh, we're looking for cultural details. We want to make sure that they're culture fit. And so we we assign product people and engineers to sit down with them for 30 minutes and assess whether or not this is the personality. So it's not about the hard skills, but the soft skills. Whether or not this is the kind of personality we want on the team. And At the end of all that, we end up learning a lot about each other. They learn about, a lot about our team. We learn a lot about how they communicate and what work they've done, uh, and whether or not they're a good fit personally on our team, or the beer test is what someone, some people say they do. Right.
1: So for someone here who's got an idea or is a, a one or two person shop, how do you recommend that they go about, you know, we talk, we build this as how to weaponize design for your company. How can they do that? Especially, you know, WeWork has the advantage of a solid brand name, reasonably uh, flush resources. If someone here is trying to be very lean and come out with an MVP, how would you recommend that they approach design so that they don't end up with, no offense Ian, but something that looks like his product at the moment. He knows I felt this way already.
0: It's cool. Um, so the design process, the first thing we've got to do, so we were talking about weaponizing design, per se. I use that word because I, I truly want to kind of wake up, uh, the, I want to kind of wake this idea that design is actually dormant in most companies, and we all design whether we like it or not, whether or not your title is designer, you're designing a business, people design teams, you help people design speeches. Like These are things, the design is just inherent in our day-to-days at work. Weaponizing design or galvanizing the design spirit and the design methodology means that we're that we're asking a lot of questions up front, that we're not that where design isn't a mystery box. Right? So if you've worked with a designer before, feels like a lot of stuff goes in, like questions and needs analysis and this and that. You wait a few weeks, and then the output is a bunch of pixels. On my end, I'm a digital designer, so I'll talk in pixels. The output is a bunch of pixels that you hope will work out. Um, What you want to do, especially if you're a small company, is that's a terrible process. You don't want to just tell someone what to design. What you actually want to do is you want to force them to ask good questions early on. You want them, when, when you work with a designer, you want them to work on how they pitch ideas to you. And I personally look for... Four or five things in any idea that gets pitched to me what is the problem you're trying to solve and who is the problem for what who has this problem today how do you know that this is a problem and how do you know that this is something people care about why is this important now which is the two things by the way how do you know and why now are two things that get lost in most pitches what is the user benefit and what is the business benefit? And the business benefit is something we want to force not just out of the business people but the designers as well because we want the designers to care not about features. At the end of the day, we want them to care about problems that if you're a for-profit business end up being solved at a functional all the way up to the pleasurable, pleasurable need way um, so that people will pay you a lot of money for it. Money is a really good thing. like It's not a bad thing. This is how we sustain our businesses. So why we go out to become a business is so that we can self-sustain and grow. And so if you're a small business, um, if you aren't hiring a designer full-time and you're, say, working with a contractor, you really want to ask them a lot of questions around their process. How much of the time that they spent on this design uh, was spent with stakeholders not directly related to, say, the engineers or the person that was giving, that were giving them the needs analysis for the, for the design itself? Uh, how much time do they spend on research and asking good questions? Um, what was the impact of the design? A lot of times we miss that because we get so dazzled by what's on screen. We, we often forget to ask people, well, what was the outcome of you putting this out there? And th- this will tell you a few things. First, it's going to tell you that they cared enough to follow up on a design that was put out into the world. And it's probably going to tell you that they care about the business, and that they understand the business because they, they stuck around uh, to understand the impact of the work that they've done. And that shows a lot of empathy, and it shows a lot of caring, uh, and that's what you want from your designers. I mean, that's one of, like, a hundred things that you want, but that's, for me, the most important.
1: Because, design, because of the creative nature of design, you know, if you're asking somebody to code something, it has a, an A, B result. Like you know it's either it's going to work or doesn't work with design there's a lot more, uh, uh, is much more subjective. And so I'm wondering how you manage the process of making sure that you can maintain a certain level, but also give people enough creative flexibility and how somebody here who's looking to build their, you know, maybe their first prototype can make sure that they maintain a bar, but can trust the designer uh, to deliver against his or her own creative process
0: you know, along the way. So design doesn't have to be subjective. Um, design is actually better when it's not subjective and it actually meets objective functional needs. Um, what you probably want to do is you want to create an environment where creativity and design work together. I, I actually think that they're inextricably uh, put together, design and creativ- creativity. Creativity. Um, design is about solving human needs, finding problems that solve real human needs. and Creativity, at the end of the day, is you're trying to... You're trying to find non-obvious ways to connect two dots that uh, end up solving the need as well. And what you want to do there is uh, you want to create an environment where we allow for some time for people to find the dots that need to be connected, and we allow for the time for research to be applied so that we could find the human needs that we're trying to solve for in the first place. So I have no idea if parents have a human need. Because I'm, I'm, I'm a parent, but I don't have a kid that's in sports. So I don't know that your product solves a human need because I'm not that person, but I'm hoping that you might have kids that are doing sports and you've spoken to families that have kids that are doing sports where you found that one of the frustrations that they have is they don't get enough communication from their coaches and they're willing to pay to solve that problem because that's how much they believe in their child. Right? That's a bull statement. I care so much that my kid does well in sports, I'm willing to pay a lot of money every single month. So when you pitch that idea, you want to back that up with how you know that. Right? How many people have you spoken to? What kind of questions did you ask them? How many people are paying you today? right? Um, so,
1: so what are the right ways to ask them? I mean, now we're getting to like the UX research part of this. Yeah. What are the right ways to ask some of those questions and what are the wrong ways to ask those questions? If he's showing them the product, what should he ask them?
0: Well, hopefully you've done a little bit of research before you've built a product in the first place. So you, before you show them a product, you probably want to sit down and, and get a sense of... So in, in design, there's a company called IDEO. They've got the IDEO design process, which is very famous. They teach this in Stanford, the, the Stanford D School, the design school there. And you, start, you don't start with product and then test. You start with empathy. And empathy is a fancy way of saying, I understand your world. I want to understand it better, so I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to watch you. I'm going to write down I'm going to take notes on the things you say I'm going to look at the things you do and I'm going to learn more there right you move that into this synthesis phase right where you look at your notes and you you've you've taken the perspective of the person you're trying to design something for and you're trying to really understand what it is you just experienced empathy requires you kind of become this person synthesis is you stepping out of that body for a second and just looking at it objectively and saying here's what I learned from this from this world then you go into things like ideation prototyping and testing and once you get to testing that's when you, the prototype and testing page is when you have a product you come back to the people you sat down with and you say hey i saw these things that you did here's what i think you were looking for based on that here's what i designed this is kind of the first pass it's early enough it kind of looks crappy i'm sorry but can you just like click through this 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 quick little envision prototype or a paper prototype or look through my sketches and tell me if this is kind of the thing that you're looking for. And if not, tell me why. Or tell me maybe what, what are you looking for that I missed in the first place. That's kind of how I would do it. I definitely wouldn't start with a product. Now, once you have a product, I mean, that's a loaded question. I mean, depending on the kinds of answers you want, you could do surveys, you could do in-person, kind of looking over the shoulder uh, analysis. You can do... Uh, we. We work. by the way, we use usertesting.com, which is amazing. It's a, it's a thing that you can send out a, a, a app binary to or you can send out a website link or you can send out a bunch of designs, and they will record people using your product with voiceover talking through specific things that you want them to do. Uh, we recently launched a new WeWork site. We did this hundreds of times, and we learned a lot from that process, and it's cheap. So if you're looking for testing, usertesting.com. Go there and just try it out.
1: So you mentioned a few tools. You mentioned Envision, uh, usertesting.com. I'm wondering if there's any other tools you would recommend to people uh, for going through this process. And I also find that designers tend to have very strong opinions about logo design and design contests in, de- in, in general. Um, not logo design, but contests. So I was thinking of like 99 designs, and I wonder how you feel about services like that.
0: So one of the biggest problems with design is it's looked at through a very narrow lens. And I feel like designers and the industry is kind of complicit in this, because when we think of design, we think of that. Like we think of the cool-looking stuff, the, the, the non-objective stuff, right? The, the stuff that's in our head, that, the feeling that we put into the design, and whether or not it's pleasurable or not. Um, so 99designs, have you guys heard of 99designs? It's essentially a platform where you can spend like $300 and 100 designers will go out, try and design the thing that you want designed. Tim Ferriss, uh, who's a well-known author, famously famously got his, uh, his uh, 40-hour work week book des- cover, Design on 99 Designs. He got hundreds of designs. He picked one. The guy that got picked got $500. I think this is an okay way to design if you're on a budget uh, or an okay way to get design. The thing that this platform ends up missing is it misses that conversation and that dialogue to, tr- to get the designer to truly understand your needs. So you would go to 99designs for a logo or a poster or a book cover. You can't go there to solve real problems. You can't go there uh, with your app to get someone to design 100 different versions of how do, I, how do I input data into a form? Because what kind of form, what kind of data matters so deeply that the designer needs to ask those questions of you. So I certainly wouldn't recommend that. Now, Envision is an amazing tool that we use to share, con- to, to share designs with each other every single day. Another thing that we do at, at WeWork, we are a design-centered company, we do weekly design reviews. Every single designer is required to pitch the work that they're working on. And this is so, so, so important because pitching your work is, is a way for you to celebrate the, the work that you're doing. It's a way for you to put yourself out into the world. Speaking is really, really hard, to Eleanor's, Eleanor's point. Um, And putting yourself out there, allowing yourself to to break down some some of your personal walls and barriers to get feedback from your team, to be inclusive of your process, is a deeply meaningful part of the design process. And I feel like at the digital team, we do this really, really well at WeWork and some of the other teams as well. Um, And we use... Usertesting.com, we tried a few other products in the vein of InVision. InVision is a great prototyping tool. Uh, We use a a, a tool called Principle to do interactive prototypes. It's a really powerful uh, app designing, interaction design tool that allows you to, without writing any code, kind of fake what the app would feel like. uh, So that when you go to an engineer or someone who's testing the product, uh, they... Immediately know what you want. You don't have to write a giant spec doc that explains animations, which is very very difficult to do So
1: we are almost about on schedule, which is a miracle and never happens But we can take a couple of questions from the audience if there are any I see one here
0: Yes uh, so the question, the question was, I mentioned the IDEO design process. Do I have a book recommendation for it? Um, yes. So Tom Kelly, I believe, is one of the founders of IDEO. Uh, they recently released Creative Confidence. Uh, I believe that's what it's called. And Tim Brown, who I believe is the CEO of IDEO, released a book a few years ago called Change by Design. Highly recommend both those books. Uh, it's coming right from the source. Another book I'd highly recommend for every single person who's trying to do not just design but create products if you're a startup uh, is a book by the guy at WeWork that runs UX. His name is Tomer Sharon. He was a senior user experience researcher at Google Search. He's written two books. His most recent book is fantastic. It's called Validating Product Ideas. It goes deep, deep, deep into all the steps that you can take. Uh, And you'll learn a lot about how to ask questions, when to use a survey, what tools you can use. Uh, This is a tremendously complicated thing if you don't know what you're doing, but he makes it really easy to understand. So I do recommend that book. Yeah, it's like a great book. That's my book. I have a potentially span audience very long. So you wanna so just want to make sure I understand the question. So you you wanna think about product problems and brand problems as long term things and how do you do that? Is that so the like, I don't want to be selfish that many people in the room that have companies with
1: building in the beginning,
0: yeah um marketing strategy and different things. So taking long term branding, right, brand building and design together, to put together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you take long-term brand building and design, put them together? Um, so long-term brand building, that's interesting. That's kind of where I'm stuck, right? Like I feel like if you're, it's hard to do like long-term brand building unless, you've, unless your, your brand has been along, uh, around for a long enough time. The thing about a brand is it, it, a brand makes a promise and then delivers on that promise. And you do that enough times and you're really clear on what that promise is and people start to understand what your brand is based on that, right? Nike's promise is we'll get you to we'll get you out of the house, we'll get you to run, right? And if you're if you're an athlete, you wear Nikes because they deliver on that promise because their shoes are so comfortable. Um, I don't I don't think that Nike was thinking when they first launched how do we create this long-term uh, how do we create a long-term brand strategy per se. I think what they were probably thinking is what is our mission and what are we trying to do with our product? So this is, I'm kind of going to fuse the product and brand side together. Um, and then how do we make that clear to the people that are buying our product? And then how do we keep doing that? Whatever it is that that thing is, right? So for Starbucks, it's, you'll get your coffee in three minutes by a barista. It's going to be delicious. They'll call your name out for you. You go to Starbucks, they call your name out for you. You know exactly what the latte is and, Anywhere you go in the world, that latte is that latte. And that's Starbucks keeping their brand promise. That's actually a really, really hard thing to do. Um, so that, that's kind of how I'd answer your question. I feel like, I, I hope I'm answering it. But I, I do think that they're linked pretty deeply in that it's not so much building the long-term brand. It's just finding the promise that you want to make and delivering on that promise through your products every single time. And that eventually creates a long-term brand that people remember and care about. Yes? So, we, we the, uh, so the question is, like, when you're getting pulled in 80 directions, how do you figure out which direction is the right direction to go into? That's a really, really hard question to answer because it's, it depends desperately on the, on the business. So at Flood, I'll use us as, a, as an example. We should have seen that making money is actually really important and we need to figure, find a way to monetize the business and we don't have tens of millions and hundreds of millions of eyeballs on this thing every single month. We only had a couple million users. Um, so ads are probably not going to work. What's next? Like, Should we go to Enterprise? Like, that's a question we, we weren't asking ourselves. Um, but that could be an example of, well, if you go to Enterprise, you're now getting pulled in a completely different direction. But in, in our case, that would have been a really good thing. We made, when we pivoted Flood to the Enterprise, we made a half a million dollars in our first two months. We had 1,500 companies on the waiting list. And no investor was willing to give us money once we pivoted the company because we had less than one quarter's worth of traction, uh, we, we had bookings and the revenue was going to come in over a series of a few months um, and we were out of money and we were out of time and we didn't have enough proof that this business was going to be a big business now, if I had that same result 1,500 companies on the wait list half a million dollars in a couple months through the enterprise product if I did that two years well, when we had two million dollars in the bank Flood would probably have been a really big business I just didn't know I didn't know too focus on that detail in that moment, so hindsight being twenty twenty, 20 now looking back at it the um, best best advice I could give you is you're getting pulled in eighty two yeah I mean you, you use your gut for sure, but you definitely also want to use your, you want to look at the market and you want to ask the market whether or not this direction is worth pursuing I certainly wouldn't think dropping everything and focusing on the next thing like the next shiny object is always a bad thing to do um, but if you have enough People in your business, if you think that there, there's an opportunity that's juicy enough, assign someone to look into it deeply um, and do a little bit of research, get on a few phone calls with people and try and sell them that thing. And if it works, you might have a thing. If it doesn't work, you might not have a thing. But you never actually know because you might have made the wrong phone calls at the wrong time. Does that make sense? So you kind of just do the best with what you have, in my opinion.
1: So he's hanging out at the bar afterwards, right? Yeah. So you guys can talk to him then. Good incentive to go to a bar. We encourage that. Uh, last question. We try to be a community that's about giving and helping out other people. And so, what can this group of people do to help you out, whether it's personally or we work? But what's something that you have as an ask of this audience?
0: So I didn't think of this. I don't personally need anything, guys. Um, I I think. Maybe the, maybe my ask is if you haven't been to a WeWork before and you have a startup and you have a business and you're trying to find ways to be a little bit more inspired and be around people a little bit more like you who could potentially help your business, where you could potentially make more money uh, because you have access to a market that you didn't have access to before, I think you should check out WeWork. It's WeWork.com. Um, I... I believe WeWork gives businesses an unfair advantage because we put them in beautiful spaces, we connect them with an amazing social network, we get them to share experiences. So we, earlier, you, Eleanor, you were sharing experiences on how to speak better. Like That stuff happens at WeWork every day. Like We just reach out to people and we say, I need help with this thing, I have no idea how to do it, can some, someone please help me? And within minutes, they get a response saying, here's how you fix it. Come downstairs, we'll hook you up, no problem, by the way, get some, every WeWork space has has free beer, get some beer down there and, and and we'll drink and we'll solve this problem together. It truly, I cannot imagine not starting a business inside of a WeWork, especially if you're a small company, but now we do this for big companies as well. So if if, if you're looking or thinking about co-working spaces, if you're thinking about a better Experience for people on your team and you're looking for ways to energize your team and inject culture into your team, I would certainly check out WeWork.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much. Stay here for one second. So one of the things that we do, that sucks, with the mayor, maybe you can help us redesign this, but maybe you, this is a, a certificate of appreciation for Bobby from the mayor as well as from the New Jersey Tech meetup on thanking you for spending time with us today. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. We're gonna wrap up very, very shortly, but a few closing comments. So if you are a startup and you'd like to pitch at one of these events in the future, go to njtech.me, that's our website, njtech.me, and click apply and fill out that form. I'm told we have only two slots left remaining for the rest of this year, but if you want one of them, check that out. Uh, Our next event is October 19th. We, I can't announce the speaker yet because it's not confirmed, but we have uh, the two events in November, the first of which, is with a partner from Andreessen Horowitz. It's actually a breakfast instead of an evening, but it should be very, very cool, so I'd highly recommend you check that out. Um, a big round of applause for all the startups and the speaker and everybody who makes this happen. I really appreciate it. And that concludes the show. I hope the guys to see you guys at uh, the Ainsworth down the street. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed the episode today. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on our future episodes. From the team at New Jersey Tech Meetup, we hope you're having a great day, and we look forward to spending more time with you in the future.